You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. In this season, and in celebration of the release of my new book, The Failures of Forgiveness, which will be released this September by Princeton University Press, I talk to people who have challenged my thinking about what forgiveness is, its limits, and its powers. If you're wondering how to deal with conflict, relationships, or how to rebuild and repair your world, then this season is for you. In this episode, I talk with Lucy Alea, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University and the University of Witts. We talk about human frailty, Immanuel Kant, the need for forgiveness, and so much more. Hello, Lucy, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Hey, Maisha. I'm so happy to be here. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well, doing well. So, Lucy, how did you get interested in philosophy? That's actually um, almost an embarrassing question. You know, um, okay. sometimes when you ask a philosopher, they'll say like, oh, I read Descartes meditations when I was 13. But when I started university, I had never heard of philosophy. I did, know what, did mm. not know what philosophy was. I did not know anything about it. I did not have any ideas of taking it. But I was doing this. Um, I was actually doing a degree in fine art. So in the degree in fine art, you had to do history of art, and then you had to do practical subjects like painting and drawing and printmaking and sculpture. And then you had to take one other random credit. And my, this is the embarrassing bit, my boyfriend at the time <laughs> said, you should take philosophy. <laughs> I didn't okay. have any other reason. I was just like, okay, I don't know what that is. I'll, I'll try that. And I took philosophy and it was love at first sight. Was it a philosophy of art class? What was the what was the topic of the course? No, um, in the South African system, there you don't really have any options. So at the first year level, there will just be one philosophy class that will cover a few different things over the course of the year. So I just took first year level philosophy, and we, so it just covered a range of different things. Started with theory of knowledge, so, so it was like a general introduction to philosophy. So how did your Thinking, because now that you're, you know, most of your writing is on a historical figure, Immanuel Kant, how did that love affair, did you, was you introduced them, to him in your, in this introductory course, or did that come way after the fact? That love affair also started during my undergraduate degree, but that was in the third year course. Okay. We were lectured in a third year course by my lecturer at the time, who actually, he was also my, the very first lecturer in the first year course, Michael Pendlebury, who's now based in the U.S. at North Carolina State. He just, he was trying to work through cancer critique of pure reason and trying to understand it. And he just gave us these lectures as he was trying to understand it. And it was just, it sort of blew my mind how strange and deep and broad it was. And I guess I was sort of addicted ever since. So let's talk about Kant. Let's talk about forgiveness. And for lots of people, that may sound strange, the combination of both of those, those, <laughs> those figures. <laughs> so I want to begin first by asking, why do you think that our thinking about forgiveness present a paradox? I think that forgiveness is actually genuinely quite a mysterious thing. There are some people in philosophy who think that there's something paradoxical about forgiveness. And then there's a lot of philosophy that tries to explain away the paradox. 
I don't think it's paradoxical exactly, but I think it is genuinely quite a strange, mysterious, and amazing thing. And I think this is because of like the paradoxicalness arises if you just try to think about or explain what forgiveness actually is. Because on the one hand, it's a response to somebody doing something wrong, which in a way holds on to the idea that what they did was wrong. So unlike justifying or excusing or accepting, those are all, when somebody does something wrong, you think it's wrong, but then you discover that they had an excuse. Excusing is a way of coming to see that there's nothing wrong, so there's nothing to forgive. Justifying is a way of coming to see that there's nothing to forgive. So in all those cases, you change your view that there was really something wrong. In the case of forgiveness, you don't change your view that it was really wrong. They, they shouldn't have done it. It was their fault. It was culpable. They don't have a justification. But somehow, you stop holding it against them. You stop blaming them. You stop resenting them. And just even just characterizing what it is to continue to see an act as wrong and continue to see this person as really having done it. They really did it. They was really culpable. They really don't have an excuse. But don't somehow hold it to them. A lot of people have thought it's hard to just even characterize exactly what that means. It can't be that you, when you don't hold it against them, you stop seeing them as the person who did that. So one way of thinking about what it is to hold something against someone is that you see it as somehow reflecting on them. You know, you're the kind of person who would do this. I'm now going to take account of that in how I deal with you. But in forgiveness, it seems like you stop holding it against them but you don't stop knowing that they are the kind of person who did this because they really did this. So the difficulty is that we can sort of get ourselves into a space where it seems like forgiveness is either irrational on the one hand or kind of pointless and trivial on the other hand. So if you're not seeing a person as the kind of person who would do this thing while you know that they are, it seems sort of irrational and but we normally think of forgiveness as, at least often, praiseworthy or virtuous or generous or a good thing. And it's hard to see why something which we think of as so morally important and significant and often praiseworthy doesn't really make sense that that would be something irrational. So, so then a lot of people say, well, you know, what, what makes forgiveness not irrational is if the person has really repented and atoned and made amends. And so they've really given you reason to think that this, that they're not this kind of person anymore. But then it seems like once you've seen that, there isn't anything left for forgiveness to do. So it seems like there's just, you know, there are just accurate ways of tracking what a person is like. Are they, you know, what kind of a person are they? Are they the kind of person who would do this wrong thing? Are they the kind? No, now they've given me some reason to think that they've changed. And that you should just sort of track this accurately. And it's hard to see um, what what space is left for forgiveness? And is that is that what you refer to as one of the strategies that something is used to escape the paradox? Yeah. So one of the strategies that's used to escape the paradox is to say that forgiveness requires apologies and demonstrating that you've changed. I've got a fairly specific account of what forgiveness is, but I'm very open about. Whether you know you can forgive with apologies, you can forgive without apologies. So, so I think forgiveness you can require apologies, but you don't have to. So I think making forgiveness require that the wrongdoer has apologized and demonstrated that they've really completely changed undermines the power of forgiveness. I think it sort of puts 
forgiveness in the space of what I would call sort of moral bookkeeping, you know, so suppose you're sort of keeping an account of the way somebody acts and what that shows about them. And you can just have this very accurate account. So they they do a bad thing. It doesn't mean you think they're absolutely terrible overall. You just keep track. There's this little small thing that now goes into my book that, you know, they're the kind of person who would say that kind of thing to me in these circumstances. And I'm just going to keep my accurate, careful books. And I think that the, the account of forgiveness that thinks that it, it's not forgiveness or it's not acceptable forgiveness without apologies is, I, I, I think that's just moral bookkeeping. I don't think that's really the right space for forgiveness. So I, so I think that forgiveness centrally involves feelings. It involves overcoming resentment and anger and in general blame feelings. So one thing you might think is, well, feelings and judgments are different things. I could judge that the person did wrongly and whether or not this reflects on them, but feel about them, my feelings could change. And I think in a way there's something in that, but but we need to be careful to take emotions seriously. You know, so emotions are really important. They're a huge part of our lives and everything we care about and value. And emotions, most philosophers and psychologists think, are not necessarily opposed to reason and beliefs. Emotions have content. If I'm angry with someone because they took something of mine without permission and they broke it, my anger has all that content. It's not just like an itch. <laughs> it's like it represents them in a certain way. And we really care about this content. It's central to our lives. It expresses our values. When we're angry about injustice, that's an absolutely central way we care about and reveal and express our values. And we care about other people's attitudes towards us as they express them in their actions. And I think that forgiveness has its place in this emotional life, but it's not an emotional life that is divorced from reasons and content and judgments. It's one that is enmeshed with them. I'm sitting here thinking about your paper, Wiping the Slate Clean. Yes. And I wonder if you could just take us back a little bit, because our conversation today is, is grounded in a more recent paper. But I wonder if you can take us back a little bit, particularly when we're talking about your account of forgiveness, of addressing kind of the main argument in that, in that paper and how that relates to your overall account of forgiveness. So in a way, Maisha, you're putting me on the spot because now I have to remember what I, I said in that paper. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, it's like 10 years, more than 10 years ago. So that was my first paper on forgiveness. And part of what I was trying to do in that paper was characterize this idea of wiping the slate clean or ceasing to hold somebody against someone that I think is at the center of forgiveness. And I still think it's at the center of forgiveness. I don't, I'm not fully satisfied with everything I said about it in that paper, but but there's some central ideas that, that I still um, hold on to. So I still think this change in affect or feeling, the way we feel towards the wrongdoer, is at, is at the heart of forgiveness. And I think that the way to make sense of the apparently paradoxical nature of forgiveness is not by sort of requiring apologies or requiring other a series of conditions. So one of the things I was looking at in that paper was that people try to distinguish forgiveness from justifying, excusing, accepting, or and and other ways of giving up resentment and blame by adding conditions to the change of heart that is involved in forgiveness. Like, for example, ceasing to resent for the right kinds of reasons, like moral reasons. And I think none of those attempts to add extra conditions work. But I think that what 
we really need to do to make sense of forgiveness and to make sense of this sort of apparently paradoxical features of it is to really pay attention to the contents of the emotions involved, to the content of blame feeling and the content of the change in blame that happens when we forgive. And what I I think is sort of central to that blame feeling is that I think that blame feeling contains like an appraisal or a view of the wrongdoer. It sees this wrong as somehow reflecting to them, sort of accruing to their account somehow. And I think forgiveness wipes that away. That's why it's wiping the slate clean. So it just, it's a reduction or ceasing to have towards the wrongdoer, the blame feeling which their wrongdoing actually justifies. And again, just to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the sort of paradoxical stuff, what seems paradoxical is that the wrongdoing does justify (laughs) that blame feeling. But yet, I think we can also make sense of how it can be rational and helpful and justifiable to to cease to have this blame feeling. And I, I think that's what's going on in forgiveness. So let's let's turn to Kant. I wonder how has Kant helped you understand blame, forgiveness, and and human frailty. And I also wonder how does his thinking perhaps give us a way out of what seems to be puzzling about forgiveness? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting question because, as you said at the beginning, not many people would think that Kant is an obviously fruitful place to look <laughs> for anything about forgiveness. And right. in fact, although you know, as you said, like a lot of a lot of my professional life has been spent working on this strange dead German philosopher, <laughs> Immanuel Kant. When I started working on forgiveness, it didn't have anything to do with Kant. It was just like a totally different topic. I was just thinking about as a contemporary topic, I wasn't looking at it historically and I wasn't looking at it in relation to Kant. But but as you said, I have found Kant helpful in thinking about forgiveness. But the parts of Kant I found helpful, I think would possibly be surprising to professional philosophers who don't work on Kant but have kind of ideas about what Kant's moral philosophy is about. So it's not the sort of central parts of Kant's moral philosophy that people would normally think about. So the two things that I have found helpful are, one is that I think the way Kant thinks about morality and human agency makes it the case, or, or he thinks it is the case, that in being a moral agent in being a person who acts in the world and who makes sense of themselves and who thinks about themselves as acting and acting for reasons, we have a deep and fundamental need to see ourselves as basically good because he thinks it's actually part of the structure of practical reason that we are somehow always committed to. So, So Kant thinks that basically morality is grounded in respecting the humanity of other human beings. And he thinks that we are always aware of this, even when we're acting badly. And this actually governs, in a way, what it is to even act for reasons. So we can't really make sense of ourselves as acting without understanding ourselves as having this commitment. So that, that's kind of a weird idea, but I, I think he has it. Um, and that's, in a way, a kind of optimistic idea that everybody at some level is aware of the need and the basic moral imperative to respect the humanity of each human being. And then on the other hand, he's got a very pessimistic, (laughs) um, very different kind of idea, which is that he thinks that as human agents, we're all basically a bit of a mess. We're all fundamentally and even, I think, in a sense, structurally flawed moral agents. 
at the same time as that, we're all, although maybe this is a slightly different point, we're, we're sort of works in progress. We don't have fixed, our characters aren't like machines with fixed tendencies or dis dispositions. They're constant works in progress that we're constantly making through our choices. Now, it's a complicated story as to why he thinks we're all such a mess. People sort of debate that. Uh, my own account of that is that at least one part of the story is that it's centrally grounded in our coming to agency, our being brought up in conditions of injustice so that kind of distort our capacity to treat all human beings as they ought to be treated at the same time as we're fundamentally committed to doing that. And that leads us to all sorts of forms of self-deception and denial and delusion. And But anyway, that, that's a long story. But the basic thing that I think we need for forgiveness is the idea that we're all a bit of a mess. We're all stru fundamentally structurally flawed. And there's no possibility in the actual human condition of becoming agents who aren't like that. All we can do is be engaged in a, a process of constant striving where we're constantly making ourselves and we're constantly trying to reorient ourselves towards the good when we fail, which we inevitably will do. So I think what's significant about this picture of human agency, which I find in Kant, I think it explains, it enables us to make sense of what's going on in forgiveness. And I think it also helps us see why we need it so much. The way I think it helps us to make sense of what's going on in forgiveness is, so if we go back to that idea I was talking about, about that kind of moral bookkeeping, where what you're doing is you're trying to have a constant series of accurate appraisals of exactly what a person's character is like, how good they are, how bad they are, how considerate they are, how kind they are, and you're just accurately tracking. So you're just aiming to accurately track exactly what they're like. I think in a sense, on Kant's account of what, of what it is to be a human agent, there isn't actually a fixed answer to that. Each person is constantly capable of orienting themselves to better willing, to being better than the way they've shown themselves to be in some wrong action. And when you forgive, I think you affectively see them, which is like a philosopher's way of saying, see them with feeling, as having this better willing that they are capable of having. So it's not irrational because they really could be like that, but it's not requiring that they've proved that they're like that, which I think actually isn't even possible on his account. So, they don't, so it's not that you need to have done absolutely every possible thing to demonstrate that you've changed and that you've apologized and, you, and that you've made amends. E even if a person hasn't done that, I think it's possible to forgive them. So it's possible just to see them in this optimistic way, which sees them as affectively or sees them with feeling as better than their wrongdoing indicates them to be. So I think this account of agency enables us to see how this the, the attitude, the content of forgiveness makes sense. And I think it also enables us to see why it's so important to us. Because I think that, and it's this is sort of a combination of this, this way in which we're all a bit of a mess and, and we just are flawed and we do keep messing up even though we can keep trying to be better. And that we need to see ourselves as good. And I think the, the problem with this is that it makes it very hard for us to take on board our own wrongdoing because of this need to see ourselves as good makes us liable to sort of lurching between despair and leniency. 
So we're liable to just sort of think, when I really take seriously that I really did this thing and it was really wrong and I really don't have an excuse and I really hurt this person and I, I should have known better and I, I did know better, but I really did this thing. And when I really take that on board, it's liable to make us sort of just think, well, I'm just this terrible person. And just to stop engaging with trying to be better because we just kind of despair. You're just sort of wallowing and, well, I'm just this terrible person and there's nothing to be done about it. And so despair is incapacitating. It stops us from engaging in the project of trying to be better. And on the other hand, when we don't want to, to, to be drowning in despair, I'm just this terrible person and I, you know, there's nothing that can be done about that. We're liable to think, well, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, everybody sort of says things like this some of the time and, you know, I, I'm good most of the time. And so we're liable not to take it sufficiently seriously. So we're liable to sort of this lurching between despair and leniency where we're just actually not just looking squarely at what we did because I think of this need to see ourselves as good. And I think this is a really interesting feature of our agency. So if you think about all the things we do in the world, you know, like I'm not that good at mental arithmetic and I'm a terrible navigator. And, um, you know, if you want to know where North is, I'm not your person. <laughs> and I'm not a good runner. I'm a, you know, if you, the only time you're going to find me running is if something is running after me. Now, <laughs> I don't <laughs> need you to see me as better in any of these respects that the evidence supports seeing me as being. You know, if, if you think that like I'm not the person to rely on to know where North is then you know I'm I'm happy for you to get that and we're both you know we're not going to get lost but I think we do care about being seen better than our wrongdoing indicates us to be we really want when we've really hurt someone and really let somebody down we actually care about them not seeing us as being this person who would treat them in that way so with respect to our, our basic moral agency, I think we, we, we do have this need to be seen as better than the evidence of our wrong actions suggest us to be as, as good. And, to, and I, I think we need this actually to avoid despair or to just not take our wrongdoing seriously, which is um, the other extreme of leniency. So forgiveness, when somebody is able to give that to us, it enables us to... And, and this is just a, to sort of slightly sidetrack. This is another thing which, which philosophers writing in this area have written about, about taking emotions seriously, and that, that we really care about how other people feel about us and see us in their moral feelings like emotions. And, and these emotions, they can be a central part of our lives and they can really affect how we are. So we can help each other through these attitudes. So if you think about trust, trusting someone can help them to be trustworthy. And I think that forgiveness can help a person to hold on to the fact that they can be oriented towards the good without being too lenient about this thing that they actually did. So it, it helps a person hold on to this idea that they aren't just fundamentally hopeless without uh, um, being too lenient about this thing that they did. And I, that's sort of a an idea that I take from Kant that explains why it's so significant to us in our interpersonal reactions that we really, it really helps us to actually be better when another person is able to extend 
that generosity to us. And that, that leads me to my, to my next question. So I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the, the language that you're using. And so uh, you kind of highlight this notion that we need to be seen as, as better. And that is also kind of connected to, in, in your paper, you talk about how this helps us understand why we need forgiveness. So you have this need, this need to, to be seen as, 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 as better and this need for forgiveness. Is forgiveness the only thing that can satisfy that previous need? And if, if it is the case, I don't know what your answer is going to be. If it is the case, do you see forgiveness not just as necessary, but perhaps even as a requirement, <laughs> something that we, it's not that something that we just can do, but something that we, we should do in certain circumstances. How do you, how do you, how do you respond to that? So let me start with the second bit. I, you know, there's some people you mentioned, Alice McLachlan being on your cast before and I think Kate Norlock has also been yes um, and I think so they're both people who've argued for very pluralistic accounts of forgiveness that a whole range of things can count as forgiveness and I'm somebody who's argued for quite a specific account of forgiveness so I really think this change of heart is really central to forgiveness but apart from the change of heart I'm completely pluralistic so I think that you can forgive without apologies, but even with apologies, you don't have to forgive. So I think forgiveness is very seldom something you have to do or are absolutely required to do. I, I, so I'm very non-prescriptive about whether people ought to forgive or in what circumstances they ought to forgive. So I don't think it's absolutely necessary or the only way we can hold on to this sense of our agency. And it would be a problem if it was, because then, so I, I do think we are interdependent creatures and we build our moral lives in relation to each other. But at the same time, it would be problematic if our entire moral agency was completely dependent on, say, one other person and their attitudes towards us. Sometimes a person just won't forgive you and you just have to do the work yourself on your own. <laughs> Right, um, right. But I think so, and I so so, I, and I think that's possible. And I don't think people have to forgive you, actually, and you don't have to forgive people. Um, but I think that forgiveness can play this really powerful role in relationships. So, so I don't think it's the only way for us to hold on to a sense of ourselves as oriented towards the good and trying to be better at the same time as taking our wrongdoing seriously. But I think it can really help. And that's why I think it has its basic role, its most central paradigmatic role in interpersonal relationships in which we're building ourselves together. What are whippets? And why do you, and why do you love them? <laughs> because I think your whippets are the only whippets that I've actually met. So, so, so explain to the audience who may be unfamiliar <laughs> with what we're talking about. So whippets are the best dogs <laughs> in the world. <laughs> they are um, basically half-sized greyhounds. So they are small, delicate, sensitive, but at the same time, robust and incredibly loving, devoted, beautiful dogs. And I, I will let them know later that um, you're the only whippet, they're the only whippet you've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be honored. <laughs> you have a twin. You are a twin. 
I do, yes. What is that experience it like? Is is it like the stereotypical, like spiritual assumptions that we have, or is it better or worse than that? It's funny. Um, people always ask me what it's like having a twin, and I always want to say what it's like. What is it like not having a twin? But when I think about what it would be like to not have a twin, I think it must be a bit sad. <laughs> so it's really wonderful having a twin. You just have. Um, somebody who is, you know, you grow up in your family with somebody who's just at exactly your level of development, interests, understanding, companionship. And there's just somebody who's exactly understands you with you all the time. But, but, but someone might say, well, it could have been the case that a sibling could have came in the house, let's just say via adoption at the same time. Would it have been the same thing, right? Someone that's your age, just growing up. Is it something distinct about the twinness? So I don't know what it would be like to have a non-identical twin. And I think, so somebody, so a sibling who was adopted at exactly the same time and exactly the same age, I think would be more like having a non-identical twin. If you have an identical twin, then you really have like pretty much the same abilities and, you know, you're like you... You have like the same bodies. I mean, I buy my twin really hates shopping. She so when mm-hmm. I, whenever I buy any item of clothing, she says I have to buy one for her too. So you know, you just like you could just know that something will fit someone because you just have right. the same feet. So you can buy shoes for each other. What do you most adore about South Africa? That's a it's a complex question. South Africa is an amazingly complicated country. So the most simple part of the of what I would say to that is just that it's home, you know. So there's something about I think for anybody from anywhere, there's something about home that is just sort of in your bones. You know, the way you feel familiar with the weather and the landscape and the natural environment, and also your family live there and you know how things work. So, so that's just one basic part of it. South Africa is just um, also endlessly, constantly interesting. In, in all the good and bad ways, <laughs> in, but in a way that you just constantly feel that like what it is to be a human being in this world is just constantly in your face here. I mean, we have so many problems in this country and also so much potential to work them out and so many things we haven't worked out and so many things we have. You know, I grew up, I, I grew up under apartheid and I was a teenager in the last years of apartheid. And so that, that was a really dark time when it was really hard to imagine how it would ever end and how the struggle against apartheid would prevail. And it did. You know, it was such mm. a terrible and intractable and difficult thing to overcome and and we overcame it. And you know, we have we have a lot of problems at the moment, you know. So Two of the obvious problems that that the world has, inequality and the climate emergency, are extreme in South Africa. And, you know, I don't know how we're going to overcome those. But, you know, what we have done, I think there's so much sort of hope to be taken from that. And so much that is just constantly interesting and challenging. And also, it's really beautiful. And you should come back and visit us again, Maisha. <laughs> I, I agree. Whenever you, whenever you invite me, I'm, I'm, I'm down. I, I love it. It's one of our favorite, favorite places, and I was able to come via your invitation. I've been there several times, and I, I just, I just, I just love it. 
Lucy, thank you so much for this conversation. This was this was great. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure chatting to you, Maisha. Anytime. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.